I'd say probably got more methodical over time. Or an alternative way of saying is I, I really didn't have much of a clue about you know what sort of the possibilities were, especially in Latvia. I just remember always learning about something, and then the week after deciding, okay, that's the thing I'm going to do. And, and this this sort of is a recurring theme. I learned about the possibility that someone from Latvia could go to Cambridge or Oxford in sort of my first year of high school, and that immediately became the goal. And when, when I learned that people had done that a few times, having gone through those same competitions. That sort of became the focus. When I actually went to university, I then learned, okay, there's this thing called startups, and that you can actually go to the U.S. and work at large tech companies as an intern, and immediately decided to pursue that. I wasn't able to do it my first year, but was able to do it in the second year after that. And then, again, I was very late to find out that McKinsey even existed or what it was. I remember my friend told me you should look at management consulting, and I thought they were personal. Coaches to CEOs until realizing it's a, it's a little bit different. It's actually an interesting group of people solving business problems in a, in a kind of academic way. And was very late to apply. Somehow managed to get in way past all the deadlines after deciding that that's the thing I wanted to do. What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? Understandably, a tough question for any 20-something to answer. So join me, your host, Taylor Marks of the Rise Year Podcast, as I talk with some cool people about what they do and occasionally go on long rants of my own about the pains of growing up. <laughs> Today's guest is Peter Ahrens, the founder of Auditless where they build flawless smart contracts. And if you have no idea what that means, no worries. Listen to this episode to find out just what Peter is building and how it involves big words like Ethereum, Bitcoin, and blockchain, and why you should care. From Latvia originally, I grew up doing a lot of maths and programming competitions in, in school and high school, and that got me really interested in going and, and studying math in Cambridge, which was, which was uh, great. And that was actually my first foray. When I went there, I discovered about startups and technology and really realized that as a programmer, I could eventually start a company or, or work on products and, and not just be a programmer. And I ended up starting to explore different jobs in that area. So I worked at Google and Twitter as an engineer and data science intern in California. I then realized, okay, to start a company, maybe it's not just enough to be an engineer. I wanted to pick up some business knowledge and went to McKinsey. So I moved a 15-minute train ride from, from Cambridge to London and, and started my job there, which is actually a lot of traveling around the world, which is pretty exciting. And uh, then transitioned from McKinsey into Quantum Black doing a product management. Effectively, they acquired a, a small company back at a time and to basically acquire an AI capability. So I, I joined as product manager there. And that was kind of the final step where, okay, no more excuses. I've done a bit of management, a bit of engineering, a bit of product management. I better start my own company. And, and so I did it. So for the past two uh, years and a little bit over, I've been working on a, a crypto developer tools startup specifically for Ethereum uh, smart contracts. All right. So you've had a lot of different ventures and I was kind of like noting them down and I was like going through your LinkedIn and kind of just perusing. So you were very methodical. Was that intentional? Like at the very beginning? So when you were studying mathematics and stuff, did you kind of see the longer term in like that you needed to hit all these checkpoints or you kind of hit one checkpoint and then you had that realization that you wanted to start a business. And then from there you planned. Yeah, I'd say probably got more methodical over time or an alternative way of saying is I, I really didn't have much of a clue about, you know, what sort of the possibilities were, especially in Latvia. I just remember always learning about something and then the week after deciding, okay, that's the thing I'm going to do. And, and this, this sort of is a recurring theme. I learned about the possibility that someone from Latvia could go to Cambridge or Oxford in sort of my first year of high school. And that immediately became the goal and that, when I learned that people had done that a few times, having gone through those same competitions that sort of became the focus. When I actually went to university, I then learned, okay, there's this thing called startups and that you can actually go to the US and work at large tech companies as an intern and immediately decided to pursue that. I wasn't able to do it my first year, but was able to do it in the second year after that. And then 
again, I was very late to find out that McKinsey even existed or what it was. I remember my friend told me you should look at management consulting. And I thought they were personal coaches to CEOs until realizing it's a, it's a little bit different. It's actually an interesting group of people solving business problems in a, in a kind of academic way and was very late to apply, somehow managed to get in way past all the deadlines after deciding that that's the thing I wanted to do. And so it's been kind of this recurring theme of learning about something and then trying to make the best of whatever information I, I have. Over that period, I have been formulating kind of cer certain ideas about how to approach my career that I've been re refining and trying to put into practice. And one of the things I do is, for example, I look at other people's CVs and I, I think of if I wanna get somewhere, I look for shortcuts that they've done. I look for seeing like, oh, this person skipped a few steps here and they became a manager in this company without doing this, the other three things that other people tend to do. And I try to look for kind of examples of those shortcuts and try to take them wherever, wherever possible. So one of the things that I kind of pride on is that I've never done the same role consecutively. I worked as an engineer at Google and then I Twitter said, oh, I'd love to, for you to be an engineer. I said, no, I'd love to try data science. That seems to be the hot new thing and managed to, to, to get in doing that. And then consulting after that, then product management. So whatever people say about kind of sticking to your thing and, and progressing within that, I always try to see if I can skip a step or, or, or do something where I would learn a bit more than just kind of doing the same thing over and over again. Did you have growing up, so, like either whether it was like a personal influence or someone like externally, maybe you didn't know that was impacting like how you were thinking about your life and what you wanted to do? Definitely. Definitely a group of people. I, I'd say I'd, I'd always been very proactive and reaching out and, and getting help when I, when I do feel I need it. There were, it was more the case of recognizing certain people whose careers I found as an interesting template for things I may want to do, and then kind of trying to reverse engineer how they did it. And so, sometimes just reaching out and asking them for help. So when it came to, to McKinsey, I managed to get a you know, referral from now a, a good friend of mine from from Latvia who had gone in and probably was one of the one of the you know first people from from a small country I think to to make it at the time and he'd sort of figured out how to do it and, and got in from from a from a from a non-target university as they would call it at the time maybe and so it was it was it was those kinds of moments I think and just reaching out into to, to my network and 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 a little bit outside it to to try and make things happen when they otherwise wouldn't in terms of if I look back. There was only one job where I applied with a CV. It was it was to Google, and everything else was really just trying to kind of find my way in by emailing, you know, calling people. My first job I got through Twitter, actually. So it's it's been again just trying to find those shortcuts. How'd you get it through Twitter? There was an investor in Latvia who had invested in the company and reached out and said, "Are you doing anything this this summer?" And I said no, and made it happen. Actually, we're we're still in touch, and he's been very helpful actually in terms of giving me ideas and and perspectives on my, my current company as well. So it's been, it was a, a great start to, to, to that relationship. Twitter's like the secret kind of little, little world that people don't really know about. Like the abilities that Twitter has for you to connect with people, it's powerful, but people that aren't in like the Twitterverse, quote unquote, and I'll tell people, I'll be like, oh, Twitter's literally so magical. Like you can literally talk to CEOs and, or people that have connections that you have no idea they have the connections they do. Like, oh no, that's crazy. I'm like, literally it's amazing what happens on even like a daily basis on that site. That's exactly right. It's, it's this problem at, at the same time, it's, it's kind of full of possibilities, but it's also very hard to explain to someone what those possibilities are going to be for them because it's definitely different from person to person and and i would say i'm i'm, I'm definitely not close to you know even being really good at using it it's just i think it, it is a great place to find people that are you know somewhat like-minded and just find learn more about what opportunities are out there and how people are thinking about things and it's been really really valuable certainly over time and and, and it seems like it's it's having a moment especially now where there's so much high quality content you can get to and more and more people seem to kind of use Twitter as a, as a strong alternative to our RSS feeds or newsletters or other types of information. I certainly don't follow a lot of news anymore. I, I, I try to lean more on Twitter and, and if you, even for things like COVID, for example, you would have learned about it a lot quicker if you just followed some of the right people than, than looking, at, looking at the sort of popular news outlets. So certainly something, something great is happening there in terms of curating information. How do you curate your feed in a way that's 
both productive and like insightful and also I guess helpful in the sense of like you're creating a business so how do you kind of manage all of those facets there's a few approaches I've like over over the time found helpful so I find it I found it quite overwhelming at, at some point because I feel like I need to I don't want to miss things so I, if I if I follow 10,000 people I would I would panic because I wouldn't be able to to, to follow everything that they say. And I think to, in Twitter, you have to kind of accept that to some extent you're going to miss things, but there's kind of two, there's kind of two tricks that I, I try to do to make sure I do get information that's useful to me. One is I try to follow people that are very high signal. So I don't care how much they tweet. Actually, sometimes when they tweet less, it's better, but I want to make sure that high percentage of their tweets are going to be useful to me. And I'm okay kind of letting go of some people who have great tweets, but then it's only you know, half of their feed because then it's going to bring me the confidence that whatever I'm going to read on my feed is going to be useful. So whatever time I'm going to spend looking at my Twitter uh, feed is going to be really insightful. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of really important. And that allows me to have maybe a smaller number of people that I follow, but then really read more of it. The second one is, is something I, I keep forgetting to apply, but when I do, it, it's, it, it's, it's really fantastic, which is if I learn something outside of Twitter, I learned maybe about a company that was really cool or, or some, some interesting idea, and I didn't learn it from Twitter, I try to ask the question, okay, who I didn't follow that, that could have told me this on Twitter. And then I actually sometimes go in and, and go into the Twitter search bar and I actually search for that thing and see who's the first one to break the news on Twitter. And I see maybe I should follow that person or guarantee that next time I'm going to be hearing about a similar, similar ideas emerging. That's pretty nifty. I might have to give that a go then because it's, yeah, especially when you like first get into it. There's like 5 million different things going on and it's kind of hard to, to navigate. And then you find yourself going down a rabbit hole and not that they're all bad, but sometimes you just end up in that cycle, all the same people. We're going to kind of like jump back a little bit. I wanted to talk about your math, the math Olympiad. I was watching the video, quite intense. Those kids as a person that's not very good at math. <laughs> I was a little yeah. intimidated. What was the appeal initially for kind of getting into that? I got into it actually really early at a very non-serious level. So we have an amazing culture in our schools in Latvia. I think this is kind of something that Eastern Europe is known for, that there is culture around what we call them exact subjects or technical subjects. So I, I did my first Olympiad at a school level, first grade. And so then every year after that, we had these little, you know, competitions and the problems were really simple and, you know, they were just a little bit harder than the, maybe the questions you'd get in class, but then they got harder and harder over time. And then I remember in a, in a certain grade, I think around fifth grade, we started getting the, the regional competitions. And then at a certain point, we started getting the national competitions and I just sort of kept participating. And it wasn't something that I was necessarily practicing for or taking seriously. I think until ninth grade where I was going to transfer schools and I, I took it a, you know, a little bit more seriously, we, we ended up uh, doing well as a team. We actually sort of defeated the, the, that top school that I was, I was going to move to as a team. And, and that was, that was exciting. And, and then when I finally joined that school, I, th there was a sort of big moment that kind of really pulled me into that universe, which is we have this kind of selection competition and it's called the Baltic way selection. So the Baltic way is math competition that happens in Europe where you have teams of students from a bunch of European countries competing against each other. And so the way the selection works is they pull from anyone from high school, from, from grades 10, 11, 12, as we'd call it in Latvia, uh, and just pick the best team. And I was at grade 10, so that was my first time doing that paper. And I remember almost leaving because I, I felt the problems were so hard. We had, I think, a set of 20 problems and I could barely solve a few of them, I thought. And, and then on some of them, I just started writing some ideas down and, and thought I'd scramble for some points. And I really remember almost leaving and a few people actually did just stand up you know, and, and leave. And then I later found that I actually ended up qualifying. Uh, so I'm getting the, the, the fifth spot, I think, to the, the, the final spot to, to, to get to that competition because it, it turned out that everyone had found it really difficult and that's the point of it. And, and I was able to kind of you know, squeeze in and, and, and on an area that was not too theoretical. So the combinatorics, which is mostly about thinking about game theory and thinking about coloring squares and things like that, where you don't need to know a lot of theory because I really didn't, I hadn't gone to grades 11 and 12. I really didn't know about all the, the theory and algebra or number theory or geometry that you need to solve these other problems. But I just sort of been, been doing these, these puzzle problems in combinatorics and, and, and got pretty good at that. So 
so that was my entry. And from then, from then on, I was like, oh, wow, maybe there's something here. Maybe it's worth me actually investing more time into this and then and became a big passion to, to pursue that. So is that kind of what carried you on? Like, did you have an interest in mathematics like prior to really diving in to, to this or was it kind of fueled by doing these events? It was definitely always interesting. I enjoyed doing those competitions. I always enjoyed doing those problems and even remember spending some time discussing them with my dad, especially in some of those earlier grades while, while he could still keep up with me. And but he, he's much better at physics and, and electrical engineering and, and things like that. So I don't want to mean anything about that. And so that interest, interest built up certainly, but I, but I really wasn't that focused on the competition side of it. I really didn't know I would have you know, enough talent or whatever. I, I sort of felt that that was maybe something that people that would qualify for these competitions just, just, just were more talented or or not, but in sort of retrospect, I thought I could have just gone for it a lot earlier and probably would have been a lot better for it. And I think over time, maybe it's it's not so much about talent as it is about just yeah, natural interest, as you say, and and the hard work that you put in to kind of fuel that. You kind of let your curiosity drive you. That seems like a common thread in your life. Absolutely. It was it was certainly the appeal of going to travel to, to other countries and being able to do these competitions and tackling harder problems. And frankly, we just really enjoyed the, the problems. I mean, I remember me and my friends, we would just talk about these problems outside of the classroom and inside of the classroom and 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 and, and work on them during classes where we would probably had to focus on other things. And it was just something we enjoyed doing. There was there was not even much calculation about maths being that useful in my career later on or anything like that. It was just the most interesting thing for us at the time to make the big jump to where you are now. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit more about like what it is you actually do and your product? Yeah, so the it's not the easiest thing to explain, but I'll, I'll do my best. The kind of area I'm working in is on smart contracts. And smart contracts are something that's built using blockchain technology and specifically Ethereum. So we're, we're all hearing about the news cycle with Bitcoin kind of being on the rise. Ethereum is kind of the, the smaller brother of, of Bitcoin. And the way it's different is that Bitcoin, you could see more of as a you know, currency or, or pure asset. And Ethereum is something that actually enables more complex financial products to be built on the blockchain. And it's kind of a playground or a sandbox for people to create new financial products, right? So if you're in the traditional financial world and you want to create a lending service, you need to figure out what regulator you need to work with. You need to figure out what kind of liabilities there may be. You need to talk to lawyers and risk managers and, and all sorts of people uh, that you need to kind of pull together to, to make a new financial service. With Ethereum, I think the fundamental thing that it allows is that it allows someone from their bedroom that just knows how to write a bit of code, to create new financial products. And this is great because I think we do need more competition in this space in order to, to just get customers better interest rates and, and, and on their money or better returns on their money, because there is a huge divergence between what people with lots of lots of capital can, can can get in terms of a return versus people who may not have as much. And so I think it's a sort of this great opportunity to, to democratize that. And but that creates another set of issues. And the issue is that when you have a service that's run by humans, there's someone to call up and fix fraud and fix issues, right? If there's money missing from your PayPal account, you have someone to call and kind of they can just change one entry in a database and that money is back in there. With, with crypto, it doesn't quite work that way because there's really no set of humans that govern it. It's a truly decentralized system. And so there's just no one to call. And so if there's a mistake, it's permanent. And so and so what happens is the actual the code that you end up writing on these systems that goes into the smart contracts ends up defining that product. And if there is any mistake in that code, that is fatal and, and money gets lost. And this these losses have been in the tune of hundreds of millions over the, the last couple of years. And so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive issue. And so what I'm doing with my product is really trying to create a tool that helps people write much more secure smart contracts, helps people understand them. It's not something that you can fully automate because it is such a still such an art form of writing a great smart contract. You, you, need, you need people to, to do that, but I'm trying to equip them with a tool that helps them get more introspection about what's happening behind the scenes, catch some of the, the common mistakes they may make and, and so on. Can you give me a breakdown in layman's terms, what blockchain is? Wow. Okay. So blockchain, I'll, I'll try with Bitcoin because it's the same kind of underlying technology, but Bitcoin is a lot simpler. So if you have a, if you have a bank, for example, the way they figure out who has however much money with them is that they have some sort of database internally where they effectively store, you know, all your transactions that you've done and they can add those up and figure out how much money you have in your bank account. So the idea with 
blockchain is effectively, what if that database was not sitting in one bank's servers, the computers that they own, and they, they can do whatever they want with those servers. As we discussed, they could just change your balance if they wanted to. But instead, could we, could we have those sets of transactions, but somehow not sitting in one place, but somehow in a way that they sit on multiple people's computers in a way that all these people agree about what the right transactions are. And that's what blockchain solves. It's effectively, it's kind of like the internet, right? Because if you ask, okay, where, where is all the data in the internet? Well, it's not in one place. Some of that data is, 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 is sitting in, in Google servers. Some of that data is sitting in Twitter servers. And there's, there's so many more. And when you talk about things, for example, like figuring out where, if you type in google.com, like where should it go? That information is actually sitting in multiple different servers. And, and that's what blockchain is. It's a set of transactions that are replicated in, in many people's computers. And those, those people are called miners, crypto miners. And, 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 and so, and they effectively make money from doing all these things that a bank would typically do, such as verifying transactions. So, so that's all that it really is. It's just a clever protocol to enable this kind of situation where we have this, this globally agreed, it's called a ledger effectively, or the blockchain, which is those set of transactions that we can all agree on by having it you know, replicated in multiple computers and then having a way for those computers to kind of agree with each other. So how does one access this if it's sitting on the server and then like send it to someone? Yeah, so what you, what you do is, is when you want to you know, make a transaction, effectively take and send some money to someone else, you typically will broadcast your intent of sending that transaction to those miners effectively. And so those miners who are running the blockchain will look at your transaction. They'll say like, hmm, okay, let me see. How many fees am I gonna get by putting this transaction in the next block? And so they figure out which transactions are more attractive to them, depending on how much fees you're offering. And then they will incorporate those transactions in the blockchain effectively for you. So if you offer a fee that's too low, and this has happened to me in the past, your transaction can get stuck and it's never really goes through, but if you offer enough, it, it will go through. So it's a little bit different than making a transaction through a bank because those tend to always go through in the end. It's almost like a marketplace where you're trying to basically bid on the ability to make that transaction. What do you do if it doesn't necessarily get received by the other end? It's like stuck? Yeah, so it will always get received as long as you have an internet connection and you can connect to the network there's usually someone who will receive it and then they will broadcast it further the problem is really only if you don't have a you know a connection to the network or if you really offer a too low a fee but generally if you offer a generous enough fee they'll be more than happy to accommodate you and the the, the approval times are a lot quicker when there's a the large fee associated with that transaction do some people like is their only job to be a miner like that's what they do for a living Oh yeah, this is this is a very bizarre world we live in, but that's absolutely right. What they do is they create massive fleets of computers and they buy off they buy up graphics cards, so the same video cards, GPUs or graphics cards that people use for gaming and they repurpose them to effectively run the kinds of computations that you need to validate these transactions. And so there's literally these fleets of computers and they're obviously sitting in low-cost locations where electricity is cheap, for example, China, that are just running and mining Bitcoin. If you look at some of the things that happened in, in, in past years, there's been story uh, stories of miners actually buying entire Boeing plane and filling it with GPUs and, and shipping it over to sort of expand their fleet. So it is a very bizarre world we live in when it comes to, 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 to the actual physical manifestations of, of crypto. And there's only like a set amount of Bitcoin, right? There is. There's absolutely, there's a guaranteed a, a fixed amount of Bitcoin and it's it's that's what's you know kind of allowed people to have so much belief that it's a non-inflationary currency because we have a fixed supply guarantee especially in a time where we've been printing money quite liberally and, and kind of managing the monetary supply bitcoin has a verifiably finite monetary supply that anyone with a bit of an engineering background can verify by just looking at the code and the implementation of that protocol what got you into crypto and then wanting to create auditless I think just like a lot of people, I was first an investor before I actually built something in the space. So I, I invested in a, in a tiny amount of, of cryptocurrency after hearing about the DAO, which was called the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And it was a group of people who had this idea of what if we could do a venture capital fund totally on the blockchain. So what if we could just get a group of people together and pull their money, and then we could vote effectively on different projects that we want to invest into. And if those projects are successful, then we're going to distribute the rewards. 
I found, I found it an incredibly cool idea that something like that could happen where you have a venture capital fund where anyone can participate and join in. And it's almost like a little government where you just vote on things that you put money towards. And that was the first thing that really prompted me to invest. Funnily enough, that ended up being one of the major first hacks as well. And so they lost, I think, over $100 million. And, and that kind of created this memory of me of, of like this, this vulnerability to systems. And so eventually later on, when I was thinking about what to work on, I, I kind of did a very disciplined process over, over a few years thinking about what I'm ultimately interested in. Like, what do I want to work on for the next five, 10 years? Because that's the commitment level, I think, that is required to, to make a company and just not quit when it, it gets tough. And I realized that I enjoyed working on developer tooling. I realized that I enjoyed working on more complex technology like AI or I think you know blockchain definitely fits that bill. And I had a market thesis, um, which was around simulation. So I had this view because I think it's also important to pick a growing market. If you're going to work on it for five, 10 years, it, could, it cannot hurt the, the, the sort of famous Jeff Bezos story where he had the idea to start Amazon once he saw how much the internet was growing rather than kind of have the idea and then looked at the numbers. And so simulation felt like an opportunity where we were using AI a lot, but we, we didn't have good simulation environments for like things like self-driving cars or different processes. I just had a discussion with someone about COVID, right? Like, why don't we have a global simulation of what different, how different lockdowns work in terms of COVID and what are more efficient ways to organize society to sort of uh, maximize economic activity while, while maximizing safety as well. And then through started talking to venture capital investors and throwing different bad ideas at them and eventually refining them and and realizing that blockchain is a, a perfect environment for simulation because it's it's all code. It's perfectly, it's not the real world that you're trying to model. It's it's actual code that is by itself very easy to model because it's 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 precise. And so I started looking at can I actually solve the security problem. The same thing that led uh, a bunch of people to lose a lot of money a few years ago that I noticed. Can I write tools to to help attack that problem? And 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 started that process of, of iteration. And even the first idea that I really went with with Auditless wasn't the thing that I ended up working on now, but it was, I think, a, a, a good enough end market that I could stick to. I knew that the sort of people that I wanted to serve were definitely the, the right uh, people to, to, to serve. And certainly so far, it seems like um, there's been good growth in that space. So what was your initial idea with it? So the initial idea was, can I, could we just find these bugs automatically, right? Like if, if we have smart contracts out there that potentially are vulnerable, what if we could just use machine learning to find these bugs automatically. And it turns out for, for a number of technical reasons, it's it's tricky. Machine learning tends to work well on kind of very so-called continuous environments, things that code is something where if you change a little line of code, everything changes completely. The program could be completely broken. And, and machine learning doesn't tend to work very well on those kinds of things. And so I started looking at other technologies like program analysis, which actually is kind of tailored to analyzing computer programs that also had its own technical flaws. And then finally, which led me to, to work on when I'm working now, which is, is effectively a transaction debugger that helps you effectively visualize different transactions on the blockchain as a much more tractable problem, but also one that would be really helpful because I think ultimately we can't fully automate finding these issues. We have to equip people. Uh, with great tools so that they can find those issues with those tools. And so that's what I'm focused on now um, on actually empowering teams to solve these issues for themselves, but equipping them with something that helps them. It's very visual, incorporates some of the complex things happening in the blockchain and, and it really helps them find these issues on their own. Are you a one-man show or do you have a team helping you out? In terms of full-time staff, it's I, for now I'm a one-man show, but I tend to outsource from from time to time, whether it comes to doing consulting projects or it comes to uh, product development and 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 continue to to outsource tactically. The, the the one thing that's funny is that it's all been engineering. So it's a, it's a, it's a company with the <laughs> where every single person that's worked in the company uh, or for the company has been an engineer at the moment. <laughs> Keep it in house. Okay. Yeah. So is the product is it live? Like people are using it right now? Or are you still like in beta or like building it? So it, it's, it's, an, it's an alpha. So people can sign up and, and generally get access if they're, if they're interested in working with a small set of users to refine the product and, and, and kind of narrow in on exactly the, the use case that we want to solve. But yeah, hoping to, I think, I think this year is, 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 is going to get us a lot closer to actually sort of something like a public launch where sort of open the floodgates. But right now it's been a, it's, it's been a private alpha and, and, and so far we've got really encouraging feedback and, and it's, it's very clear that this things that we need to, 
to, to, to work on refine, but very happy with, you know, this third final pivot of the company, I think is going to be the, the, the final one. And we're really getting into something. What was the second pivot then? Uh, so the second was the program analysis in terms of, it may sound very similar, but in terms of the actually technologies turned out to be very different from machine learning and AI and the program analysis techniques just relied on effectively it takes a program and turns it into a bunch of formulas and then attempts to solve those formulas. Uh, so it's a very general purpose technique because it could, in theory, can solve any math problem out there, but in practice, it doesn't quite work that well. So that was what I found out after really working on it for a few months and discovering that it really doesn't scale in the way that I wanted a, a tool to scale. I think it's totally viable. It would have been a great you know, R&D slash consulting business, but, but I'm ultimately, I love the idea of a product that's just out there and people can sign up and get started with the first five minutes and find value in. And that's kind of the direction I wanted you going. Well, I hope this, I mean, this one sounds like it's going to work. I sort of understand the idea, but other yeah. people do. So. <laughs> there takes a lot, it takes a lot of, this is, it's one of the great signs that, that I tend to see it as a positive when a company is hard to explain because it must mean that I'm working in a, in a, in a market, which is not too competitive, right? So I'm, I'm hoping it is one of those things where I need to take at least five minutes to try and even sort of build up the, the different, the different aspects of, of what's happening in blockchain. And frankly, it took me months to even understand how it worked. And it was one of those things where just reading about it is not enough. And I felt like once I actually wrote some code that was looking at Ethereum and like, once I had a, a wallet and I could make some transactions, I was like, oh, okay, so this is how it works. And I'm just trying to sort of see it. And it took months before I, it even made sense to, 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 to me. And, and it's just been one of the hardest things to learn, but also one of the most fulfilling actually to, to, to go into and, and approach. Yeah, I feel like it is kind of like a walled off concept of sorts because you hear people mention Bitcoin and Coinbase isn't the same thing, but it's still mm. in like the industry and stuff. And I hear those and they have a general idea of like blockchain and whatever, but I'm like, the whole concept just seems like really far-fetched. So when anybody talks about it, I'm like, all right, I sort of get it. I get like 5% and then the other 95, I'm like, all right, just went over my head. <laughs> Absolutely. And obviously the news is just so focused on prices and it's all about Bitcoin is up or Bitcoin is down. And and I think we need just more of like, what what, what does it actually do? How does it actually work? And and, and that's um, actually one of the, the, the most interesting parts. So at the end, like I had to, you know, actually look at the white paper and read it and so on to really understand it. And it's a, it's a well-written paper and something that's actually really, uh, you know, a fantastic piece of innovation. But yeah, I think we, we just hear about the prices and that, that's not going to help people understand it over the long run. One, one thing I've been surprised about is like in our cohort, just how many people in, invest in Bitcoin or, or have some, some amount of Bitcoin, not necessarily having a full understanding of it, but kind of maybe understanding broadly the, the monetary motivations of, of investing in it. So, so it cer certainly seems to be, be, be getting more popular. And, and I think with that, that people will find better ways of communicating because I think it's not, it's not just a problem, you know, that people are not understanding it. I think it's also the problem on the blockchain world of, of like, how are we communicating it? I think we just haven't done a good enough job to communicating these concepts. So basically breaking it down and like someone creating a course or an ebook or something that's like really well known, essentially that like the average person could take away like what it is, how to use it, and then kind of have an overall grasp of the whole idea and concept. Absolutely. I think that'd be That'd be something really useful. And, and I, I know people are kind of trying to Coinbase actually, they have this concept called Coinbase Earn where you can do a little course on different cryptocurrencies and they will actually give you um, free money in exchange, which is quite a great idea to get people involved and have a, a little bit of a payback at the end when they suffer through the, the process of trying to understand and, and these things. So I think that's that's a, that's a good way to, to go about it. Since you brought up on deck, do you want to discuss like why you're in on deck and what you hope to get out of it? Yeah, so OnDeck is really has been a really exciting uh, way to kick off 2021. I think it's, it's a fellowship for writers and run as part of a broader set of fellowships that initially I think targeted founders and have since expanded to a, to a, to a couple of different things that people are are doing in a kind of modern internet economy. And the, the one of the things that attracted me was just I just 2020 2021 we're pretty limited on on how we can socialize so one of those things was just it's going to be it's going to be great to, to to meet some new people and to, to to work with some people and to just feel like moving forward in this year and doing something meaningful rather than just waiting for the 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 inevitable end so so that that was a major part but then also i think that the community they're building together 
and kind of the combination of a great workforce. Most popular newsletter writers or publishers in the, in the, in the space. And, and, and we're having good writing training, which is for me really useful as I've, I, you know, I studied math since I never really uh, learned to write very well at all. But then also from a community perspective, it seems like there is a vision around connecting, not just within on the writing, but also connecting these community communities over time. So it's going to be, I think, something really exciting, which is hopefully going to result in new connections over the over time, even, even beyond the program. So those are the main motivations. And so far, it seems like it's, it's really delivering on those. Yeah, I would say that's literally, that's the biggest pull is the network aspect of it itself like you can join a lot of different communities whether it's through slack or twitter or like whatever some other networking thing and nobody really cares it's kind of like this dull party where you walk in and everybody's like sitting in their own corners versus here it's like the instant you're put on that slack channel you can feel the energy like no matter where anyone is in the world everybody's excited to be there everybody wants to talk there's this just automatic sense of engagement and just everybody's in it together that, that's that's absolutely right. There is a kind of a elevated uh, level of energy and excitement, and it's and it's not fake. It's really sincere. People are excited about writing and 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 and, and reaching an audience and and just meeting each other and and having these conversations about writing. And it's a great mix, also of having people that are you know deeply interested in evocative writing and and looking at very advanced authors and really appreciating the craft of writing versus also having sort of experts in monetization and growth and and how to really scale a newsletter who are kind of more interested about the, the, the business aspect of, of, of writing a newsletter and how to two meet and come together. It's pretty cool. What was an event or experience, be however long ago, that maybe at the time was deemed a failure that now looking back, maybe not, maybe you don't see it as a success, but it was like a big pivotal learning moment for you. Ooh. That's a great question. There's a, there's a few that come to mind. I, one of them was when I was at Google doing my software engineering internship, I learned about the product management program at Google. And that was actually when I discovered, and again, it's one of those things where I discovered it and I was like, oh, this is something I want to do. And so obviously I decided I want to do that next year. And I applied and, and interviewed and I, and I didn't get the role. And that was quite annoying because I think at the time, Google was frankly at the forefront of in terms of what they were doing with their product management program and specifically the associate product management program. Was, what was unique was they were basically taking graduates and, and letting them be product managers on, on, on real products, which I found quite exciting in terms of the level of responsibility and as opposed to having to work as an engineer for a few more years until, until we make that transition. And that's when, that's what led me to kind of, I could have taken that as an opportunity to say like, you know, okay, maybe I'm just not good enough and I'm going to go find some things sort of less ambitious, but I, I kind of, in spite of that, wanted to find something even better or, or more exciting. So I, I remember applying to, to, to a few other places and actually McKinsey was one of the things that came out of uh, that process of looking for that next role. And, and I, that's from then on, I kind of realized just the value of what you're going to miss a bunch of targets, but it's going to be fine as long as you keep you know, shooting higher and higher rather than kind of taking that as a, as a big rejection. So that was, that was probably one example that I think was uh, definitely tough, at the, uh, tough pill to swallow at the time because it was a really exciting program and I wanted to be a part of it. But in the, in the, in the long run, I'm really, really happy that I did end up learning about all these other opportunities in McKinsey, which I probably would never even know about and it turned out to be so useful. I like how you kind of just take things as they are and you're trying to constantly figure out like where, how to get to that next step, whether or not it is the one you're expecting it to be. And if that doesn't turn out, then you realize that you have to pivot and you find a way to pivot and it ends up like you, it seems like you ultimately like try and make the most out of every opportunity, regardless of what the situation is. I think that's a good, yeah, that's a good mindset to, to try and have absolutely. And I was, I think first uh, a, a bit younger as more of a kind of impatient brat and how I approached some of those things where I just had this sense of impatience of when I wanted to do something, I wanted to do it now. And if, if something seemed like a great adventure, I wanted to start that adventure now rather than say like, oh, maybe in five years I'll do this or maybe in three years I'll do this. I just wanted to say, okay, how do I do it in a couple of months or next year? There must be some way to do it. And if someone tells me no, I'm just going to walk over to the next person and, and talk to them about it. And, and that's really how some of those conversations go. And and it's surprised. It's surprising how many shortcuts actually do exist that that you can take if you if you really uh, know what you want to do. 
and, and know what your next adventure is, is going to look like. What have been two books that have been impactful in your life? So I, I do tend to read a lot and it's mainly nonfiction and, and science fiction. So I think one of the, one of the books that's uh, I've really loved is the, the foundation series uh, by Asimov. And it is, it's one of the most phenomenally complex plots. And I think it's, it's, it's trying to develop its way and, and, and get out there in terms of a, in terms of a Netflix series or an, or an Apple series. Uh, the rights have been shifting around, but I think it's, it's gonna, it's gonna come out on our, our, our screens at some point. So, so I, I truly recommend watching, watching that. But I, I think it was what it, what it really featured was this idea of someone who could really predict the future using mathematics. And so there's this idea of studying history using mathematics and, and really predicting how a civilization would evolve over time. And I, I found some of those ideas to be, to be really interesting in terms of just encouraging me to kind of be able to tackle any, any, any problem, even if I'm not necessarily qualified to, to do so, just sort of from, from first principles. And then the second aspects that were interesting were more the philosophical aspects towards the later end of the series. If you get to like books uh, five and six, there's some great you know, philosophical debates about the kind of future of society and where we're headed, about sort of trade-offs between freedom and and, and kind of, or, or more generally living as, as more of a hive mind, which are also exciting uh, things to think about. So that was, that was a big one. I think that the, the second, the second is actually not so much of a, uh, a book, but it's an, it's an anime series that I think I'd like to highlight, which is, which is called Kagi. It's about this 13 year old kid who basically stumbles his way. And this is kind of Japan after the war. So absolutely sort of decimated and and he, 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 and is still kind of run, run by yakuza's and, and there's all sorts of bad stuff happening. And he stumbles his way into this Magjong parlor and, and, and then effectively, and he's, he's all soaking wet and he just stumbles in there and the, the yakuza's are about to kick him out. But then he, there's one of the, one of the persons there that is losing the game and says, oh, this is my, this is my, this is my, like my, my, my brother's boy or something like that. And this is someone I know. And so he welcomes him in. And because he's losing so much, then the, he realizes that the boy starts talking to him and, start, and he doesn't even know the game, but he says like, you don't have the right psychology to play this. And, and eventually this, this guy says, look, just play for me. I'm lost here. I'm going to lose so much money. Just play for me. And then he kind of picks up the game very quickly and, and ends up sort of winning the, winning the match. And there's just all sorts of things happening with the police coming in, sort of asking for him and, and him kind of flipping the situation around to basically protect him from the Yakuza as well. And, and, and it, basically the, what the show ends up being about is, is, is again, just this notion of how you can just get into some new field or, or some topic. And again, just by being brave enough and, 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 and clever enough, you can, you can, you can get better at it. So that was incredibly influential for me. And just, again, like just providing courage of like, you know, shifting sometimes disciplines or, or when, when going into McKinsey, I'd always think back to that when I had to go into a new industry and, and not know what I was talking about, which actually happened more, more often than more often than not, but, but then very quickly, you could actually, uh, you know, pick things up and, and work from there. Yeah, I mean, I have not seen it, but I will have to add it to the list of things to watch because it sounds like a very powerful message kind of portrayed with with just a generic kind of kind of story that anyone could take anything out of, but the overall message seems like everyone should <laughs> should watch it. Yeah, I totally it's it's hard for me to to sort of estimate how other people would react to it given that it's it's really not that widely popular as kind of a general source material, but it's, it's nice and short. It's kind of one season effectively. And, and it does have these really interesting themes of then uh, also the, the kind of final, the kind of final stage of it is really him then en- ending up kind of facing. Uh, so, so the most powerful man in Japan, which is, which is another interesting idea of how, again, you can kind of rise up to, to, to tackle these really big challenges. And, and so, and sort of back in my home country in Latvia, we also have a lot of corruption and things like that. So it's, it's one of the, it's one of the things that, yeah, turns out to be inspiring in sort of more, more ways than one in, in, in terms of, and, and creates some optimism around how, just how much power a single individual can have in, in a society that feels that it's overrun with certain power structures. And, and sometimes we feel, you know, somewhat helpless in it. So I think it has that powerful message, but it's, it's just, a, it's a great plot. And like, 
some of the, I don't know if you're, I certainly wasn't familiar with Mahjong and it's, it may not be the most interesting board game, but it seems like from the Queen's Gambit example, it seems like people can really get into it if it's, if it's, if it's wrapped up in the right story. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but certainly a great one as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I, my parents won't play, I live with my parents right now and they won't play chess with me, but the series is good. And I understand the hype around it and, yeah. and everything. It's, it's on the list of things to do. We'll play like backgammon and stuff, but haven't made it. To oh yeah. Backgammon is pretty- <laughs> oh backgammon is uh it's pretty cool too yeah i played a bit of that in the, in the past as well yeah i think the queen's queen's gambit i think uh you can yeah a lot, a lot of people have been you know messaging me and saying like yeah i've just started playing chess and, and so on which is which is great to, which is great to see like, that kind of interest i never i never would have expected the hype around chess if that movie like well, had that movie not come out i don't think we would be here <laughs> absolutely and it does and does make you it does make you think like, okay, now we, now we have this powerful medium where we can make people excited about things. Like, what are we going to do with it? Right? Like we should, maybe we should do a, a series about entrepreneurship and, and nonprofits and, 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 and people finding the climate and, and trying to encourage people to, to make those things seem cool and exciting. And so, which I think they are, but maybe not often presented in that way. I think that's actually a really good point is the whole reframing of these, whether they're, well, they're like often overlooked, whether it's something like chess or it's something like climate change, instead of having documentaries or making like the old ways seem like just that's how it is. And that's the normal, like Mm. creating these social movements basically around something that really grips people's attention, which in this case was a TV show, which is like, especially right now, people have nothing else to do besides sit and watch TV. Therefore, you have the ability to also play chess. Exactly. And this seems to be something romantic about the idea of like studying a good chess book and just like getting caught up in, in that solving the puzzles. And it's, it's something that I'm, I'm so glad that our people can relate to because I felt like kind of my high school was totally, experience was kind of totally in that headspace where I was just thinking about all these math puzzles and so on. And, and seeing that character on screen, literally doing the same and having people really relate to that is, 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 has been great because it's, it is truly, you know, something that's so rewarding and you don't need to always be looking at a screen or it can be just a, just a, just a book that, that can be you know, quite entertaining as well. If you had a book written about you, what would the title mm. of the book be? I would say maybe something like proving that it's possible. Something very simple. <laughs> I like it. If a complete stranger came up to you on the side of the street and asked what you did, and you had 30 to 60 seconds to describe to them, what would you say? I would say I'm helping create a fair financial system. What are two pros and two cons to what you do? One pro would be just there's so much exciting thing to learn in this space there's so many smart people to meet in this space the cons would be it is i guess there's the the it's somewhat driven by prices you know what the what media thinks about it and what other people think about it and i, I think it'd be better if it'd be more focused on the fundamentals and the technology i think we get a bit carried away that way the the second one i think I, I hope that we don't get into too many problems with, with governments around the world. I, I, do, I do hope that they will, uh, there is this sort of tail risk in people's minds that if, 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 if the idea of, of, a, of a fixed scarce currency is going to be something that governments are not going to be willing to accept, like what, I hope they don't shut down the technology and some of the exciting innovation that's happening, but really embrace it. Is that at what point, you probably have no idea, I don't know, very, just like, at what point in the future do you see that kind of like becoming an issue where governments are trying to like really step in and put a pause to it or regulate it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think definitely probably no one really knows. It's 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 really hard to say. But I guess I think it's it's really the the the, the question of are, are are is the economic benefit of having those blockchain companies, for example, in the U.S., is going to outweigh the downside of Bitcoin maybe putting pressure on the U.S. dollar in, in terms of a, as a as a store of value or as a means of payment. So I think it's just, it's just a bit of a race of a time to make it sort of so economically important where, where the countries can't can get away with it. I think in, in, in China, it's probably happening quicker and they're, they're actually proactively embracing it from the government side. But yeah, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to predict how quickly these markets are going to rise. I think it's just largely a determinant of their size and, and, and of what the, the implications are. The, the, the funny thing is, I don't really have a good picture of what the first breaking point would be, right? What would make it 
the government to, to really you know, panic and consider. It could be something as simple as like, okay, if uh, they're, they're they're struggling to to collect enough tax revenue because when they when they print money, it has there's a reduced supply of the, the U.S. dollar because everyone's holding a bunch of Bitcoin. You know, I, I don't know what those like. It's it's actually exciting to think about what those different scenarios are, and 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 I haven't seen it really laid out in a way where I could I could tell you like this is how I think it's going to go. So it's going to be an adventure for everyone involved to see how this plays out and what happens. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. If you had 24 hours to live, unlimited money, and could travel anywhere at the snap of your fingers and bring whoever you wanted, what would you do? I think I, I would definitely, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely traveling to somewhere new. So I haven't been to, I haven't been to Australia. I haven't been to I haven't been to too, too many places in in, in in South America. So I, I maybe I'll say uh, Australia and New Zealand just to just to, just to see it back on them with my own eyes. And uh, and I don't want to leave anyone out. So I think there's 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 at least three people who I definitely like to take on that. So I, I don't want to I don't want to leave anyone out. So so can't quite boil it down to one person. But 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 yeah, totally. You know, I think checking out Australia and 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 just maybe walking around, like seeing some nature, uh, you're doing something adventurous would 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 I think make for a make for a good time. Sounds like a good trip to me. The next one is, would Peter at 8, 10, 12, whatever age you want to pick, kind of roughly around that range, would he be happy with where you are now and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm healthy and I'm totally, I try to remind myself that especially in these conditions, everyone who's under a roof with an income is in a pretty great position. And so totally, totally happy. And honestly, I think pretty much, pretty much after I got into into university. I, I really, I think, I, I kind of uh, proved myself to myself, or whatever it's called. I, I kind of stopped stopped attaching my identity to my my achievements and, and things like that, and I started to just focus on what I actually want to do and how I want to spend my time. It tends to tends to be more important. So I, I, I absolutely, I, I think. What do you want to accomplish, either personally, professionally, or both, in the next six to twelve months? It's a nice and short time frame. In the next six to twelve months, yeah, I'd love to get closer to that public launch. I think with August, that'll be really exciting, and that'll be the main thing. The other thing, just get a holiday. I mean, I've been trying and failing to. I think we and so just a good long holiday in a warm place right now would be very appreciated and would be is an ambitious but achievable goal. I hope. My two takeaways from my conversation with Peter are, first, sometimes the first iteration for what you're building won't work, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means something needs to be changed, whether it's the marketing copy or it's the overall design or it's something in the structure of how the program is working. So go back to the drawing board until something else lands and repeat as needed. Peter did just that with his company and ultimately found what was going to work and set Autopolis apart from competitors. Second, there are many ways to get anywhere. Might not be quote unquote on time or by traditional means, but keep your eyes and ears open for any opportunities that spark curiosity. And then the most important part is go chase them. Thank you.